All right, good. All right, so far we've talked about marriage, God's design for marriage in our very first session. We've talked about the purpose of marriage being that of companionship. Then we spend a little bit of time talking about the role of the husband, God's design for the husband and his role. And we said there's three basic things there that got to be a learner, lover, and leader. And then we talked about the role of the wife, God's design for the wife. We said there's three things with her as well, submission, suitable helper, and selflessly reverent. And now we get to the issue of communication. Communication in the marriage and in the home. This is a big issue. And really, honestly, we could spend the next eight hours on this issue and I, could, I would not stop. So what I'm gonna give you is just a little slice of what the Bible says about communication to kind of help you. I'm gonna give you a quick JIT tour overview is what I'm gonna do. You may not view it as a JIT tour overview when I'm done, but that's really what I'm doing, okay? So let's begin and talk about God's design for communication in the home. I don't know whether you can see this on the screen, but I love this little comic strip that came out. Why we'll never understand each other. Here's what she says here up in the corner. What, this is what he heard. You're way too stupid to be trusted driving alone in bad weather. What she said, drive carefully, dear. <laughs> or down there at the bottom, what she heard. It's your lot in life to stop whatever it is you're doing in order to serve my every need. What he said, honey, do you know if we have any more AAA batteries? <laughs> or how about this one here? Um, what he heard, I'm going to make you wish you were dead for the rest of the week. What she said, Tell me the truth, honey. Do I look fat in this? <laughs> or it's what, what he heard. Anything less than absolute perfection, or what she heard, I should say. Any what she heard. Anything less than absolute perfection makes you an utter failure as a wife and a mother. What he said, mom is coming over for dinner. <laughs> uh, or this, what she heard, life as we know it will cease to exist unless you can alter the space-time continuum. What he said, honey, are you almost ready yet? <laughs> there she is putting her lipstick on. And... What he heard, and this is my favorite one. Honey, why don't you put your head in a vice and I'll turn it, the handle until your skull explodes. What she said, honey, why don't we just turn off the TV and just talk? <laughs> Stick your head in a vice and I'll turn it until your skull explodes. <laughs> Let's just turn off the TV and talk. <laughs> That's my favorite one. I just love that. <clears throat> or lastly, there's this. What he heard. Your right to independent thought and ability to form an opinion has been revoked. What she said, I do. <laughs> All right. 
we can honestly say this, that good communication in Christian marriage does not happen automatically. It does not happen automatically. This is got to be a result, if you're going to have good communication, a very deliberate, conscientious work on your part. Now, did you hear me on that? Good communication in the Christian marriage does not happen automatically. This is where a lot of young couples dramatically fail. And maybe you've learned if you've been married for a while. They think, we love each other. We naturally communicate. And we can look into each other's eyes and share whatever's in our heart. And we don't feel threatened at all to share these things. It's just so wonderful. These things really don't apply to us. Maybe to every other couple on the planet, but not to us. We're unique. It's just us. And we're able to communicate. We have this special ESP that happens between us. I mean, I can just say, Two words, she says, and he understands what I mean. <laughs> Give him a few years. Give him a few years. <laughs> so as a result of that, they go into marriage thinking, I don't have to work on this. It just automatically comes naturally. We see so eye to eye. All right? And so they don't work on it. Eventually, as time goes by, they begin to realize they're not, they're not communicating well at all. And then they begin to think, what happened? What's happened to our marriage? I mean, we started off, I can remember when we were dating and we were engaged and everything was going so well. And what happened? What happened was they decided that they didn't think they needed to work on this. That's what happened. They made that conclusion, whether it's consciously or unconsciously, they made that conclusion in their mind. We don't need to work on this. We don't, we don't need to work at it, so to speak. And I got news for you. Neither is the Christian marriage immune from problems. Why? Well, part of the reason is because you and your spouse are sinners. This is what we call in theology the doctrine of depravity. That is, you still struggle with the remnants of the flesh. There's still a battle in you with competing desires things that you want that come into conflict with what your husband or your wife wants, things that you want that conflict with what God wants, and these things collide, crash into each other because you and your spouse are sinners and because you and your spouse are finite with sinful hearts as well. And by that, I mean only God is infinite. He sees what's coming around the next corner. We don't know. We don't know what the future holds. It's easy for two sinful people living in the close environment of a home to occasionally bump into each other, whether figuratively or physically. This is going to happen. 
And when that happens and you can't see what's coming around the next corner, this, is, this becomes an occasion for massive conflict, argumentation, strife, quarreling, people get hurt, people getting upset, people, people holding um, grudges. This can happen in a home. And the Bible explains why. It doesn't have anything to do with distinctive personalities. It has everything to do with desires that do battle in our hearts. Now, I've brought that up a couple times today, so it's best that we go over and look at it. So let's go over to James chapter 4. And verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? It's a good question. And again, as I said before, James does not say, well, it's your distinctive personalities. After all, men are from Mars and women are from Venus. Venus all right? That is a bunch of hooey. That is just absolute nonsense, according to Scripture. There's not a hint of that in the Bible at all. That's not the reason. What is it that causes differences and quarrels and conflicts? The Bible is very clear, James 4.1, is not the source of your, ple your, not the source, your pleasures that wage war on your members. What are your pleasures? The pleasures are what I want. That's what I think that it's going to bring me happiness. What I think that's going to bring my marriage uh, to be a joyful experience. My pleasures inside. But the problem is, my pleasures collide with my spouse's pleasures. That's the problem. Wow. Verse 2, he says you lust. Now, this is a strong word. It means you crave, you deeply, deeply crave, <coughs> and you do not have. So you commit murder. Now, I don't think that the early Christians were running around murdering each other. It's not what he's saying. I think it's the same kind of murder that Jesus was talking about in Matthew 5. What, what was he talking about in Matthew 5 when Jesus says that uh, you have heard that it was said you should not murder. But I say anyone who, commit, who, who hates his brother is already a murderer. In other words, the heart of a hater and the heart of a murderer is the same heart. It's just that one person has acted it out and the other one hasn't. Okay? So, when he says, he's dealing with the lusts and cravings of the heart here. When he says you commit murder, that means he's talking about you commit murder in your heart. If you have ever been to California, especially in the area where I live there in Los Angeles, you know the traffic is horrid. You go into some of these auto dealership places and you can buy this little sound machine that you put on the dashboard of your car. And when you're in heavy traffic to relieve the pressure and the stress, you can hit certain buttons on this particular sound machine and it only, you can only hear it on inside the car. You can't see it outside the car. And you can figuratively blow up the cars in front of you. All right? You press this little button. All right, and it launches a missile. Now you press this on a little button, it's a machine gun. All right, the person in front of it. Or you push the letter of the little button and it launches a grenade. 
All right? So you can have your choice of all these different things in order to get rid of the traffic, traffic in front of you. There you are sitting on a hot freeway in the middle of the summer, and all these people are blocking your way to get ever to wherever you want to go. Now, that's what the Bible was referring to when it talks about ritualistic murder. We do that. It's a venting of what's truly in the heart. And the Bible says, if given the opportunity, the person who's that way, and they thought that they could get away with it without consequences, they would do it. They would do it. They would kill. They would kill. That, let's say that that guy had literally a machine gun hooked in the front of his car, and he thought he could get away with it. He'd take all those people, including you, out. All right? He'd just remove the traffic in front of him. Okay? Now, that's what I think James is talking about. You lust. You crave. So you commit murder. That means you hate in your heart. Because you want something the opposite of what I want. And I really want this. You don't understand how much I want this. Like the big discussion. What are, what are the big discussions that always are the main topics that marriages get involved with? Sex, numero uno. Money, number two. Relatives, number three. Okay? Those three things. Sex, money, relatives. Now, why? Why are those the leading topics in marital conflicts and fights? Why? Simple answer. Because those are the things that are closest to our hearts. Right? That they have to do with what we want or don't want. Um, and so that's why we're willing to quarrel, uh, fight, argue, debate. It, it comes from the heart. It comes from our desires that well up within the heart. What is it that I really want when I fight with my husband or my wife? What is it that I really want? What is it that I really want more than I want to be God's kind of person in our home? Because that desire, whatever it is now, has become my God. That's something that I, it's my functional God. It's something that I bow down to. It becomes my functional idol. It's what I really want more than anything else. And I'm willing to fight, quarrel, become mean, hateful, demanding, manipulative, threatening. I'm willing to do all those things. I don't know, I'm going to pull the levers, even if I have to use the children. I'll pull the children in, that, in there to get what I want. The children is the ultimate clout. If I can find a way to argue that my side agrees with the welfare of the children, <laughs> that's got it, man. I've nailed it. The ultimate word on the issue. Bad, bad stuff. What is it that causes these divisions and quarrels? It's these pleasures that do battle deep in the heart, and it starts there. That's where the real battleground is that motivate us to say and to do such wicked things to the people that we supposedly say that we love. 
and we hate. We don't like that. So that's why we say that the reason why Christian marriages are not immune from problems is because we're sinners. And to top it off, we're finite sinners. We can't see everything that's coming around the, the bend. And furthermore, because your heart has various cravings and desires that conflict with that of your spouse and your children. Your kids can be pretty demanding and kids can be very, very selfish. And when you have a certain way that you want your day to go and those kids interrupt that day, it's easy to turn a lot of venom on those kids. It's easy to do. Because you realize what they're demanding you do is the opposite of your day. You realize that. Or at least the way you want your day to go. So good communication in the Christian marriage does not happen automatically. It doesn't happen. Secondly, not only that, good communication and loving relationships can be built by couples who are committed to being God's kind of husband and wife. <coughs> if you are committed to doing things God's way, if you're really committed to doing that, your marriage can dramatically change. Your communication in your marriage can dramatically change. But again, this is going to take deliberate, long-term, conscientious effort. Let me say it again. Deliberate, long-term, conscientious effort. Why? Because you're breaking patterns. You're breaking habit patterns of thought, of speech, when you're used to just spouting off, saying wicked, mean, venomous, biting words, when you're used to that, it's hard to change. We're habituated to those things. You know what a habit is? A habit is a grave with both ends kicked out. That's what a habit is. You're in a rut. And a rut is a grave with both ends kicked out. So we get into these ruts and it's really hard to climb out of these ruts. But pretty soon with purposeful, conscientious, deliberate action, you can begin to change. Your reaction to your spouse doesn't always have to be negative, pessimistic, God dishonoring, venomous, mean, doesn't have to be that way. If you take to heart biblical principles of communication, your marriage can begin improving today. That's really key. But you've got to be sincere in your desire to do things God's way. This means he defines what is best in your marriage for you, not you. Now grab your Bible. Let's go over to Ephesians chapter 4. And we're interested in verses 25 through 32. And in Ephesians 4, 25 through 32, we're going to outline four rules of communication. Four rules of communication. And I'm going to ask you to memorize these four rules. Four rules of communication. Okay? Sometimes in counseling, I'll teach and talk about these four rules with couples. And I'll ask them to keep notes, and I'll ask mom and dad to go home and teach them to the kids. They sit down, and they have a deliberate time teaching again, and it's dad's assignment to teach them to the kids and it's mom's assignment to make all the visual aids 
And then mom's additional assignment is to make little posters around the house that'll display all four rules of those communications. She's supposed to display it on the refrigerator and in the bathrooms and in the bedrooms because we're going to start living by these four rules of communication right now. Start living by this. And that's what I want to teach you. I want to teach you these four rules of community. There's nothing magic about them. There's nothing magic. And these four rules are only little helpful tools or reminders to help you to remember what the Bible says. That's all they are. They're memory devices to help you to check on how am I doing with my communication? And how are we in our home doing with our communication? Now, the preceding context is important to properly understand this because um, it has to do, in verses 17 through 24, with put off and put on. You have certain lifestyle patterns you have to put off and new lifestyle patterns you have to put on in order for there really to be change. And that's why we would say permanent change in the Christian life is always two-factored. Now, let me briefly review this before we get into these four rules. If you still have your Bible open, let's go over to Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse 22. Verse 22, 23, and 24 has three, what we would call in the Greek language, three Greek infinitives, three of them. And they're very important infinitives here. Verse 22, that in reference to your former manner of life, and that little phrase, former manner of life, that is in reference to your habits or your patterns of life, some of them are really bad habits, he says, you lay aside or put off the old self. That's our first Greek infinitive, to lay aside, to put off. And this is what we call an a, um, active middle aorist. An active middle aorist. So the Bible says here that we have a responsibility to lay aside. And the middle voice means it's our responsibility to do this. We have to stop practicing the bad stuff right from the very beginning. If I'm saying mean, hateful, venomous things to my spouse, if I'm using dishonest language, if I'm undercutting them in any way or tearing them down in any way, I've got to stop that and I've got to stop it immediately. You lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with lusts of deceit. What is it that corrupts them? What corrupts them is those lusts, those lusts that do battle on the inside that we saw there in James 4, 1 and 2. Those desires that well up within our heart that says, I want that no matter what. That's those lusts of deceit. You've got to lay that aside. Verse 23, second Greek infinitive, that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Now, this is an infinitive too, but this is a present passive, meaning this particular um, infinitive is saying, we don't do it. God does it. God renews our mind. In other words, we stop the bad habits. God gives us a brand new attitude of mind. That's verse 23. 
We're passive in this. God does all the work in giving us a new spirit in our mind. We have a brand new rejuvenated outlook on our problem. Right? Where before we looked at our problem with our husband or with our wife as a negative pessimistic thing, now we're looking at it as an opportunity for God to be at work and to change me and to make me into a better person. So we have a brand new attitude. Verse 23. And God gives it to us. Now, verse 24 is our third Greek infinitive. And put on. There's our third infinitive. Now we're back to aorist middle. In other words, we ourselves are responsible for putting on the new self in the likeness of God that has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So that's the reason why we say over here that permanent change in the Christian life is always two-factored. You've got to put off, you've got to stop the bad things that you're doing in your communication with your spouse and start new, godly, loving, righteous communication. You haven't really changed until that's happened. Sometimes in counseling, I like to teach it like this. Have you ever heard the old adage, when is a door no longer a door? When is a door no longer a door? Kids used to say it years ago. When it's a jar. That's right. When is a door no longer a door when it's a jar? Okay? Now, I like to use that as a paradigm. When is a liar no longer a liar? Or when is a thief no longer a thief? Or when is a sexually immoral person no longer a sexually immoral person? Well, most people will say a liar is no longer a liar when he stops lying. Or a thief is no longer a thief when he stops stealing. Or a sexually immoral person is no longer a sexually immoral person when they stop being sexually immoral. That's what people will say. But all of that is wrong. It's not what the Bible says. Well, then, when is a thief no longer a thief? Well, look at verse 28. He who steals must steal no longer. That's the put off. But rather he must labor. That's the put on performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. In other words, a thief who has stopped stealing is just a thief between jobs. All right? He's still a thief. A thief who has stopped stealing is just a thief between jobs. So if you're going to stop being a thief... You have to stop stealing, but you must also add to that. You begin to work with your own hands so you have enough for yourself and enough to give away to those who have need. That's when a thief has stopped being a thief. Well, when is a liar no longer a liar? When he stops lying? No. That's just a liar between lies. Okay? When is a liar no longer a liar? Well, what's the put on? When he begins to tell the truth. See, my kids, when they were little, thought, as long as I don't tell a lie, I'm not a liar. No. You're still a liar until you speak up with the whole truth. Right? When is a liar no longer a liar? 
when he stops lying and he begins to tell the truth. That's what verse 25 says. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak the truth, each one of you with his neighbor. So you've got to put on that which is truthful and righteous. That's when a liar is no longer a liar. So let's start. That's our background. That's my introduction. Let's start our four rules of communication. Let's look at verse 25. Our first rule of communication is this. Be honest. First rule of communication. Be honest. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak the truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be honest. Now notice what this says. <clears throat> he says, speak. The word that's used here is not the typical Greek word lego, which means to say something or to tell something. It's the word lalao, which means to speak up or speak out with the truth. And in fact, it's used as a Greek imperative. You speak up. Paul says, you speak up. Now that's very important. When is a liar no longer a liar? When he begins to speak up. Why? Because people cannot read our minds. Now what happens in your marriage when you have a conflict and a disagreement? My guess in, in most marriages when there is an argument or a conflict, then somebody stops talking. All right, that's it. I'm not going to give her the privilege of any of my beneficial information. Mm. I'm not going to talk anymore. And so they clam up. But here he says, when you've stopped being a liar, you are still willing to speak up with the truth. Clamming up is out for the Christian. That's not an option. Yes. <laughs> that could be. That just reveals even more of their guilt. <laughs> but that's not an option for the Christian. We need to resolve this issue. Clamming up is not going to resolve anything. It's not going to resolve anything. It needs to be talked about. Notice what else he says. He says not only are we supposed to speak, but we're supposed to speak truth. Truth, he says. Now, sometimes speaking the truth or speaking the truth here is a verb that involves continuous action because it's in the present tense. So the idea is we're supposed to continue to always speak the truth, hence the present tense, continually, always in the present speaking the truth. That's what we ought to do. It is to be the new lifestyle in your marriage is the idea. David says you've got to speak the truth from the heart of integrity, Psalm 15, 2, not deceptively or with disguised, hidden, or double meanings. We must speak the truth from a heart of integrity, not deceptively or with disguised or hidden double meanings. No, no, no. We've got to speak the truth. So, when we, when we use disguised meaning, when we use double meanings, 
then that leaves the hearer confused. What did he or she really mean? And that's what the sinful heart does. We know how to word things in such a way to be ambiguous in our meaning. And so when somebody eventually ties you down and says, did you mean by that? And they take the negative perspective. Oh, no, no, that's not what I meant. Because we have a back door out. We can say, this is what I meant. But we purposely stated it so vaguely that the meaning was communicated. That's not speaking the truth. That's being deceptive with our communication. Furthermore, here's some examples of the way that you can be dishonest in your speech. There's outright dishonesty. That is a deliberate lie, falsification, or denial of the truth. There are some people that are like that. They just flat out tell a lie. Like Sarah with Abraham. They tell a lie. Or there's incongruities. This is where your speech is inconsistent with your halo data, which is your nonverbal communication. You say things, but sometimes we can say such nice things in such wicked ways. Like the husband who responded to his wife by saying, I love you. All right. Now, if, you were, if she would have gotten that in an email, she would have thought, wow, isn't that nice? He told me that he loved me. But that's not the meaning that came across. Why? Because the halo data was completely different. The halo data said, I'm so disgusted. Do I have to say it again? I love you. All right. Which says, I'm not interested in saying this, but I'm doing it in order to satisfy and get you off my back. Right? That's terrible. So he ends up communicating just the opposite meaning with the same words that are used for affection. Or there's disguise communication. Sometimes we use innuendos, insinuation. Sometimes we're very creative with implied accusations. Implied accusations. We can imply that we're accusing our spouse and they'll say, are you accusing? Oh, no, 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 no. We're just implying it. But we do it deliberately. This is not something that's inadvertent that I'm talking about here. This is something that we do deliberately, purposely. That's disguised communication. That's a form of falsification. It's a form of a lie. So we could say this, that honesty really is more than not lying. It's being open and honest with the truth. Our first rule of communication is be honest. That means that we need to be open and honest with the truth. It's also an attitude of the heart. Like David says there in Psalm 15, we have to do it from the standpoint of integrity. A heart that's full of integrity. Colossians 3.9 says, Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. And again, the idea is permanent change in the Christian life is two-factored. Stop lying and you begin to actively tell the truth. 
We don't clam up. We don't hide. We don't use implied accusations or insinuation or innuendos. We don't have a conflict between our verbal messages and our halo data. All of that is wicked, evil communication. Then he says, we're supposed to speak the truth, but we're supposed to speak the truth lovingly. Look at verse 4, 15. Speak the truth in love. Why? Well, sometimes people can be brutal with the truth. They can use the truth like a sledgehammer and beat people into the ground with it. I remember counseling one guy who says to me in the middle of counseling, well, I told my wife the truth. I gave her a piece of my mind. Now, you've got to understand my thinking at that point. I didn't really visualize him as having that big of a mind. And I wanted to say, don't give her any more pieces because I don't think you'll have anything left. But I bit my tongue. I didn't say that. No, no. See, sometimes people, uh, he, he was truthful in what he had to say to his wife. I mean, what he was saying to her was truthful, but he did it in a brutal way. It was wrong. And therefore, it was ungodly. If you speak the truth in spite or anger, you can be brutal with the truth. If you speak without forethought concerning the person that you're speaking to or about, you can be brutal with the truth. Their welfare should be first and foremost in your mind. Christians are to speak the truth with the other person's best interest in mind, first and foremost. What's best for my husband? What is best for my wife? If I am going to communicate the truth, what's the best way I can communicate this truth? so that it comes across in a loving way, even though it may be hard for them to hear, then I'm going to find the best possible way to do that because that's the most loving way to do it. We speak the truth in love. I love Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each other. So gracious speech here is something that's likened to speech that has become salty. Now, what does salt do? Well, salt preserves, we know that. <clears throat> but I don't think that's what he's talking about, preservative speech. There's another thing that salt does. Salt makes people thirsty. Everybody understood that in the ancient world. That's the reason why you go to a ballpark to watch a baseball game. They always serve you lots of salty food. Why? Because you'll buy more drinks. Salt makes you very thirsty. Right? Gracious speech is like that. When you speak graciously, even though your spouse may not agree with what you have to say, They'll be thirsty to come back and hear more. Your speech has been seasoned with salt. There are some people who really struggle with speaking to others graciously. 
and they have to work hard at being able to do this. How do I speak graciously that will make it easy for my husband or my wife to come back and hear more even though they disagree with me? Even though we don't see eye to eye. Let your speech be always seasoned, as it were, with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each other. Oftentimes, this particular verse is used to talk about Christian apologetics, but the context there is not about apologetics. The context of Colossians 4 has to do with interpersonal relationships within the body of Christ, not with unbelievers. Wow. Let your speech always be, as it were, with salt. You heard that old saying, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. You've heard that old saying? The old farmer says, yeah, but you can sure salt his oats. That's right. And that's what you do with gracious speech. You're salting your spouse's oats. You're making them thirsty to hear more when you speak graciously. When you speak hatefully, meanly, antagonistically, defensively, you're putting bitterness in their oats. And they don't want to come back and taste any more of that. But when you speak humbly and graciously with their welfare in mind, then they say, you know, I don't agree with her, but I sure like the way she says it. I don't agree with him, but I sure like the way he says that. That's what I fell in love with. Speak the truth in love, which means speaking graciously. So our first rule of communication in verses 25 and 26, or verse 25, excuse me, is be honest. Verse 25 is be honest. Now, let's take a look at verse 26 and 27. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Rule number two, keep current. Rule number two, keep current. In other words, he says here, be angry and do not sin. Now, is there such a thing as righteous anger? Yes, there is. There is such a thing as righteous anger. It's possible for you and I to be righteously angry. But even righteous anger, if allowed to ferment, can easily become unrighteous anger. Because it becomes, it turns into bitterness. It turns into resentment. Anger, all anger is not sin. Self-centered anger is. God even becomes angry. Jesus became angry when he overturned the money changers in the temple. Why? Because the Bible says he had a zeal for the father's house. His anger was not self-centered anger. His anger was for his father and his father's house. Now, 
So the Bible says, be angry and sin not. Don't let the sun go down. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. I'll never forget one marital couple that I was counseling and we got to this particular verse and I began to describe what it means. And in the middle of the counseling, he sort of sat back and folded his arms. He says, well, then I'm moving to Alaska. Went right over my head. And I'm going, what? I'm moving to Alaska. And his wife caught on long before me. She says, you know what he means? The sun sometimes shines for at least 12 hours up there in Alaska. And he wants to hold on to his anger longer against me and finally do it. I said, whoa, back up the train. That is not it at all. This is a colloquialism. It means deal with your anger ASAP. It's, it's not literally wait until two minutes before sunset and finally deal with your problem of anger. No, 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 no. It means deal with your anger as soon as you have opportunity. That's the first thing that you've got to do. That's your responsibility. So if you don't, then you're guilty of sin. And when that happens, let me list four things. Failure to deal with each day's problems that day means, number one, it's obvious that you're guilty with sin because the Bible's clear about the fact that we've got to deal with each day's problems that day. We've got to deal with it. Deal with it as soon as possible. Now, I realize at the end of the day, if husband comes home from work and he's really, really tired, maybe you're both exhausted. That may be the worst time of the day to try to deal with a problem. Well, but you agree to deal with it when you're well rested. So in a sense, you've taken a step in dealing with that problem. That's okay to do. It doesn't have to be totally and completely resolved in that one day. The point is that you're, you're, you're making moves in the direction of resolving it as quickly as you can. Number two, when you do this, you open the way to resentment and bitterness. Because when you hold on to your anger and you don't resolve it, your heart becomes resentful. It becomes bitter. This is what I call in counseling spiritual gunny sacking right gunny sack that's a good old word you know what gunny sack is old hunters used to use that term it's a big old burlap sack they used to carry with them when they go hunting and they'd shoot pheasants or rabbits and they'd throw the, what they've shot in that old gunny sack and they carried around with them all day long hunting and hunting and hunting they come back with their gunny sack and they dump it all out and then they'd skin them and prepare everything and well that's what we do, only we do it spiritually, okay? Somebody does something against us, and we have the spiritual gunny sack on our back, and, and rather than resolving it, we throw it in our gunny sack, and then we carry it for a while, and then they do something else, and we throw that in a sack, and we don't resolve that, and we carry it around for a while, and then somebody else does something, and it, we put that in the sack, and then something, and this sack gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until one day our spouse says something relatively small. It's not a big deal, but it just happens to catch us the wrong way. And we choose that day to empty our gunny sack, all right? And that's when it all comes out. Whoa, blah, blah, 
our moment, our spouse is there. Whoa, whoa, what happened? What, what, what's wrong? I mean, what did I say wrong? I mean, I can't believe. And you say to them, it's not what you said. It's who you are. That's the problem. That's the reason why I had to empty this entire gunny sack. And I just pour it all out. Now, the problem with that is all these problems now are now dumped on the table. And some of them happened so long ago, we don't even remember all the details that are key to resolving those problems. We just remember that we have a good reason to feel really bad about them. All right. That's all we remember. I just have a good reason to feel really bad about you. And that's the reason why I dumped my gunny sack. And I didn't resolve that. And now things are really complicated. Now people are really hurt. Now there's a major wedge driven between you and it seems insurmountable now because we decide to gunny sack. We decide not to resolve problems, but just keep throwing them in and throwing them in and throwing them in. And this gunny sack gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until we can't stand it anymore and then we empty our gunny sack. That's the wrong way to deal with it. That's why the Bible says, in essence, keep current. Keep current with your problems. Don't let things build up. You can't sweep them under the rug without eventually stumbling over them. You can't do that. You can't ignore it. It's kind of like dirt in your house, right? Try to ignore the dirt in your house, and we'll see how long that lasts. It starts to build up in the corners, and then it starts to get worse and worse, and the dust is everywhere, and you hate living around it, and it just gives you a miserable... And it's just like unresolved issues are like dirt building up in your life, and you can't stand it, and you, everything looks negative, and everything looks bad. You can't stand to live like this. No, no, no. Bible says you were never intended to live like that. You need to solve each day's problems that day. Because if you don't, thirdly, it distorts subsequent problems. In other words, problems that come down the line we would normally be able to deal with is now distorted way out of proportion because of all the unresolved problems that are in our gunny sack. It's just magnified, blown way out of proportion. These problems. And fourthly, in a marital relationship, it endangers your physical or sexual relationship. You know why? Because nobody wants to go to bed with their problem. Nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to go to bed with their problem. You are the problem. And nobody wants to go to bed with their problem. So now 1 Corinthians 7 is violated. 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 6 where if you don't have a regular, ongoing, continual sexual relationship in your marriage, then that also gives the devil a foothold, Paul says. Not only does that give the foothold, but unresolved issues in Ephesians 4, 27 gives the devil an opportunity. So Satan has an open door to your marriage. If you refuse to resolve each day's problems that day, so, rule number one, be honest. Rule number two, keep current. Rule number three, oh, and by the way, Matthew 6.34 on this keep current, where Jesus talks about um, each day has enough problems of its own. 
He warns us there in the Sermon on the Mount. So we should deal with that day's problems that day. All right, rule number three. Let's go to verse 29 of Ephesians 4. Let no unwholesomeness, wholesome word, proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Rule number three, attack the problem, not the person. Attack the problem, not the person. Now you notice the Apostle Paul here says in verse 29, he talks about unwholesome words. In my Bible, that word unwholesome is footnoted. And if you go to the footnote, it says literally rotten. And that's literally what it is. Don't let any rotten words proceed out of your mouth. Now, here's the problem. Our view of rotten words in marital communication is very, very narrow. That's our view right there. Do you see it right there? That's our view in marital communication. Our view is very of rotten words is very, very narrow. We think that included in that little area is cursing, taking God's name in vain, cussing, swearing, you know, whatever you want to stuff into that little space right there. That's what it is. And that's true. That's rotten communication. No doubt about it. That's rotten communication. It's something that God's people should not do. But God's view of rotten communication is like this. Our view is like this. God's view is like this. You say, what? Well, you don't have to curse. You don't have to swear. You don't have to take God's name in vain in order to communicate rottenly. You say, well, what's rotten communication? Well, look at verse 29 says, but only such a word as is good for edification. In other words, within context here, rotten communication is anything that tears another person down. Anything that tears another person down. Wow. That's the type of communication that zeroes in on the person and their character. It may not be a swear word. It may not be a curse word. It may not be taking God's name in vain but it tears down and demolishes the other person. Words like, you always, you never. That's what we call in our home, 100% language. Is that true, they always? No. Is that true, they never? No. But we try to make it that way. That tears them down. We never use you always and you never. You turkey. You idiot, you dummy, stupid dumbbell. You know, we never let our kids say that to one another because that's as bad as cursing. It's as bad as cursing because it's tearing somebody down. Those words certainly don't build them up. So it's meant to tear them down, to destroy them, to make them feel like an idiot. That's our goal. That's rotten communication. Wow. We tend to only label curse words as unwholesome, which is a very narrow definition because God's definition is much broader. So when we say mean, hateful, God-dishonoring things, when we exaggerate or blow things out of proportion, we're attacking people, we're not attacking problems. 
And our, our third rule of communication says we're to attack problems, not people. Because when we attack people, we're letting rotten words proceed out of our mouth. That word rotten was in the classical Greek was actually used to speak of rotten fish. And if you ever smelled fish that was rotten, it's horrid. God says, those kind of words are like rotten fish to my smell. It's, it's detasteful. It turns your stomach. When people, they're not cursing, they're not swearing. They're just tearing the other person down. That's all they're doing. Unwholesome words. But edifying words, these are words that focus on the problem. They're selected in order to make it easy for two people to find a solution. They're solution-oriented words that are full of graciousness. That's edifying words. They always have your partner's welfare first and foremost in their mind. Like, I disagree with what you've done, but I'm open to hear your side of the story. Wow. Your mate's liable to have a heart attack. I disagree with what you've done, but I'm open to hear your side of the story. Or I want to find a solution to a problem that will be best for you and our home. What? All right. Who are you and what'd you do with my wife? I want to find a solution to a problem that will be best for you and our home. I want to work with this, through this with you, so that Jesus is honored in our marriage. Now, those are the type of things you have to put on. Those are the kind of responses that need to be put on. I need to work through this with you so that Jesus is honored in our marriage. Those are edifying words. Now, let's look at verse 31 and 32. Let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Rule number four. Act, don't react. Rule number four, act, don't react. Verse 31 are all the reactions to problems. Verse 32 are all the actions upon problems. Reactions to problems include bitterness, which really is a perpetual animosity that leads to harsh and unloving opinions about others. That's bitterness. Wrath, which are outbursts of passionate rage. Sometimes that happens in marriages. Anger, which is a subtle, deep-flowing anger. Clamor, which is outcry and shouting. Slander, speaking evil of another person that often comes from some kind of settled indignation. You say, well, you know, I don't think I'm guilty of bitterness or wrath or anger or clamor or slander. I'm not guilty of any of those things. But then he throws this big term out that's a huge blanket. It's like a big blanket. And it covers everything. The last thing he says is not only must there not be these things, but there must be no malice. You know what malice is? Malice is a general wishing of ill will towards somebody else. 
That's what it is. It's a general wishing of ill will towards another person, which is the root of all the other vices. Malice. You know, I can remember sitting in an English class in high school next to a girl that no matter how hard I studied, she always got a better grade than I did. And I remember sitting there thinking, God, if you would just let her flunk one exam, my whole life would be complete. God never gave me that opportunity. She never flunked an exam. Now that's malice. That's just malice. That's thinking evil of somebody else. That's being wicked in the heart. And there are a lot of wives and there are a lot of husbands that do that with one another. You know, when they get a tiff in early in the morning and he leaves to go to work and she's standing there washing the dishes at the sink and she's thinking to herself, I hope he has a horrible day at work. And he spins out of the driveway and jumps into traffic and heads on his way to work, weaving in and out of traffic. He's thinking to himself, I hope the children make her life miserable today. That's malice. That's a general wishing of ill will towards somebody else. You've got to get rid of all forms of that, he says. All forms of malice. And then verse 32, look at what you need to put on. Three things here. Three actions. One, be kind. That has to do with useful, worthy, good, benevolent towards your spouse. That's what's the kindest thing you can say or think or do for them in this conflict. That's kindness. Number two, tenderhearted, literally having healthy bowels. In the Bible, they're the seat of emotions and interaction. Therefore, it means being compassionate with your partner. What's the best way you can be compassionate with your partner? And then thirdly, forgiving. And we're going to talk about this more tomorrow morning when we talk about forgiveness in church and the adult class. To exercise grace in releasing the offense of your spouse, that includes the willingness from the heart, Mark eleven twenty five, and the verbal granting of forgiveness when repentance has taken place, Luke 17, 3 and 4. So it's a combination between attitudinal forgiveness and transactional forgiveness that the Bible teaches. Attitudinal forgiveness and transactional forgiveness. So what's the kindest thing I can say or think or do? What's the most tenderhearted, compassionate thing I can say or think or do? What's the most forgiving thing that I can say or think or do towards our spouse? That's what we need to put on. We put off all those other things that he talks about bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander along with all malice and be kind and compassionate and forgiving. When you've done that, you've really changed because permanent change in the Christian life is always two-factored. All right, we have four rules of communication. Got them memorized? We're going to repeat them. I'll prompt you. Here we go. Be. Keep. Attack. Act. Oh, that's good. Be honest. Keep current. 
Attack problems, not people. Act, don't react. Gentlemen, three things you got to remember in order to be godly husbands. Ready? Learner. Learner. Lover. Leader. Good. Ladies, three things you got to do. Remember, in order to be godly wise. Ready? Submission. Suitable. Selfless. There we go. Selfless. <laughs> Some of you grimaced a little bit. All right, you want to try it one more time, ladies? Spit it right out. Ready? Submission, suitable helper, selflessly reverent. Then be honest, keep current, attack problems, not people, act, don't react. You guys have been wonderful today. Thank you for being a great, great audience. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> we'll give them grace. Real, real fast, um, just, just scheduling-wise, if you have the endurance, I, I encourage you 